If you look in your bulletin and see the outline this morning, I was telling Jan last night, I really didn't leave very much space for you to write very much this morning. But uh, we have so many scripture verses that we're going to read and be talking about. I just wanted to make sure they're all noted there because we're not going to have time for all of us to turn to each one as we, as we go through. But uh, when we start talking about the glory of God and being heirs of God, I just want to give you as much as I can <laughs> as quickly as I can. And, uh, you know, when you think about what we're talking about here in adoption, you know, adoption is a beautiful thing. When, when a family will come to love a child and bring them into their home and give them those things that they wouldn't have had and what it means to be a, a family. And when I think about the need for adoption, there's one particular picture that comes to my mind. It's a picture of street urchins. When I was in international ministries at Insight for Living, some of our staff had the opportunity to visit Moscow, Russia. And while they were there, they visited the sewers in the city. And you go, well, why? Why would you go and visit the sewers in Moscow? It's because at the time, 50,000 orphan boys lived in the sewers underground below Moscow. Cuddling up to pipes at night was the only way to stay warm. The pictures they brought back of these boys was just heartbreaking. They were street urchins. They had no family to love them, no one to provide for their needs. They were completely on their own, and they would form a pecking order kind of work, you know, kind of thing, more like the Lord of the Flies kind of thing, you know, and they, they were begging and they were stealing and they were doing odd jobs during the day for very little pay parceling out little pieces of food at night, doing whatever they could to survive. They had no caring mom or dad to listen to their problems or put their arms around them and assure them that things were going to be all right. They were malnourished and they were sick. They had no instruction even about the basic matters of life, such as hygiene, let alone spiritual instruction. They were without any hope in the world. And the Bible uses this picture of adoption, the need for adoption, is a picture of what God has done for us. Spiritually, we were dirty, we were diseased, we were impoverished street urchins with no one to care for us. We were not there as helpless victims as many of these boys were, but rather we were there because of our deliberate rebellion against God. But one day God showed up at the cardboard shack or the sewer of our lives, whatever it was, that we were sleeping in, and, he, and in love, he chose us to be one of his family. You know, I kind of grew up in a strange family because we teased one another as kids, even in public, you know. And uh, one time we were at my Aunt Kate's house, and there was people there that we didn't know. And, and my sister and I got into to an argument, you know. And so I told her, you know, you were adopted, <laughs> you know. And she looked back at me and said, yeah, but they chose me. They had to take you. <laughs> you know, God, God chose us. He, he chose us to be in his family. He cleaned us up. He removed our rags. He clothed us with the righteousness of Christ, fed us with the nourishing truth of his word, and, and guided us in paths of righteousness and wisdom. And to change the analogy with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ, he brought us into his family. He bought us off the auction block of sin and brought us into his family 
where we have brothers and sisters to share our burdens and our joys. And he made us his heirs throughout all eternity. So we'll enjoy the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. But these wonderful truths raise a question that we hit in uh, verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. And the question is this. If we are God's beloved children, if, if we are his beloved children, and we are heirs to everything that belongs to God, then why does he allow us to still suffer? Why suffering? If a God has adopted us into his family, then why do we continue to suffer? Why do we still have to face hardships and pain and, and suffering? We know that as earthly parents, we try to do everything we can, and we should, to protect our children from suffering, right? We try to alleviate their pain, whether it's physical or emotional. And so we wonder in this, if God is all-powerful, if he's the all-loving father, then why doesn't he do the same with his children? In the early 80s, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a very popular book, a bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Remember that? And he came to a really remarkable conclusion because he said, God can't be all-loving and all-powerful because if he was all-powerful and he was all-loving, he would do something about all the pain and suffering, right? And so he said he can't be both. If he's all-powerful and he doesn't do anything about the suffering, then he can't be loving. But if he's all-loving and can't do anything about the suffering, then he can't be all-powerful. And Rabbi Kushner came to the, the thought, the belief that God's not all-powerful. And it sold millions and millions of copies, an, unpo uh, uh, an unpowerful God that he, he loves us so much, but he just can't do anything about our pain and our suffering. Well, beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8 and through the rest of the chapter, down through chapter 8, Paul shows us that our suffering is not at odds with God's love for us as his children. That just as our Savior, Jesus Christ, had to suffer first and then enter into his glory, so too our path to glory goes through suffering. And today we move into a spectacular and scary promise in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. Because it's spectacular, because it says that all of the children of God are his heirs. We receive the inheritance of God. And there's no greater inheritance in the universe. And then it's scary in verse 17 because we have to suffer in order to receive it. The path to glory is the path of suffering. So look at the 17th verse of Romans chapter 8, verse, verse, uh, or chapter 8, verse 17 again. He says, if we are children, verse 17, and if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, indeed, if indeed, that can be translated since again and should be, since we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So before we get into the spectacular and the scary, let's review the main point of the previous verses. Uh, look at verse 16 of, the, of this eighth chapter of Romans. Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you belong to Jesus Christ, it said in verse 9, you have the Spirit of God in you. If you belong to Jesus, you have his Spirit. And what does he do in you? 
he testifies, he brings forth testimony or brings forth evidence that you are a child of God. Brings forth evidence that, you pro- that, that proves it. And we ask, how does the Holy Spirit do that? And we saw at least two ways last Sunday where the Holy Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. And first of all, we saw the connection between verses 13 and 14 of this 8th chapter. Verse 13 in the middle of the verse says, If by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So we concluded that one of the things the Spirit of God does in you to show you that you are a child of God is to lead you. And here's to lead in a very specific way. The Holy Spirit leads us in lots of ways. But here he says, this is testimony that you are children of God, that the Holy Spirit is leading you into war, war against your sin, that by his power you are putting to death the deeds of the body. We have called this the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is making you holy. And secondly, we saw from verse 15 that the Spirit gives rise to the cry, Abba, Father. Middle of verse 15. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Father, my dear Father. And notice the words there, by which. By which. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. When we as believers find Rising in our hearts, the cry, Abba, Father, that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit that we are the children of God. And now we're going to see another testimony of the Spirit of God that we are children of God. And it brings us to the spectacular. The spectacular. The Spirit of God is the first fruits of our inheritance as God's children. Through God's gracious adoption, we become his children, and as children, we become his heirs. Verse 17 again, And of children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Have you ever wondered, maybe you see something on the news, what it might be like to be an heir in a very wealthy family? You know, I've heard people say, oh, I wish I had a rich uncle and all of a sudden I just found out he left me all this kind of money and those kind of things. But have you ever noticed that the wealthier the family, it seems the greater the fight among the heirs? Each one of the heirs want as much of the humongous pie that they can get a hold of. And it particularly gets nasty when there's been children born from more than one wife. Have you ever noticed that? Blended families and, and others when it comes to this. A book I read a few years ago, you know, it was one of my favorite books. It was written by John Grisham. It's called The Testament, his novel, The Testament. And it's about a self-made eccentric billionaire who dies and a lawyer just out of rehab whose life is in shambles who has the job of executing the will. And upon the death of this billionaire, His children, his family, immediately begin spending all the money to live like billionaires that they haven't received this money yet, but they can walk into stores, they can walk into car dealer shops and just by their name and who they are, yeah, it's yours, you can pay us when when you get the money. And they go into this great debt on an extravagant spending spree on cars and houses and clothes and jewelry and just everything you can think of. 
But unbeknownst to these likely heirs, the father has left an entire, the entire inheritance, every dime, every cent, to an illegitimate daughter that they don't even know about. So it's the lawyer's job in his down and outness, <laughs> great, great hero for a story like this, is to convince this illegitimate daughter to take the inheritance and then inform the family, this horrible, rotten family that's going deeper and deeper into debt, that they have been totally cut out of the will, that they're not going to get a cent. The problem is, and only John Grisham could think of this, the illegitimate daughter is a missionary in the deepest jungles of Brazil. And because of her devotion to Christ and his work, she doesn't want anything to do with any of that kind of, of money, mammon. And so she's walked away from the modern world with all its strivings and its trappings and encumbrances. But if she refuses the inheritance, it all goes to this selfish, backbiting, immoral family who will have to thrash it out in court to see who's going to get it because of the probate and all those kind of stuff. And so it's his job to convince her to take this money. And she's just not going to do it. Because the missionary daughter understood something that's implicit in Romans chapter 8. Heirs of rich people are not happy people. They fight and they take each other to court and they try to grab and protect their portion of the inheritance. But as children of the living God, the creator and the Lord of all the universe, we never need to fear that someone else will get our portion. Romans chapter 8 or chapter 10 verse 12 says, The Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. The Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. So I want us to see from God's word this morning at this point, four spectacular things, four spectacular things about our inheritance as God's children. First of all, first spectacular thing is we are heirs of God himself. That's what it says in verse 17. As God's children, we are heirs, also heirs of God. Now, at the very least, this means that we will receive all that God has promised to us as his children. But the, meaner, the, mean, the meaning is deeper and even richer than that. It also means that God himself is our inheritance. We inherit God. In fact, if we said that our great inheritance was mainly about the things that God makes and mainly about the things that, that God gives to us and mainly about those kinds of things and not God himself, we would be idolaters because we'd worship the creation instead of the creator. To want God's gifts and not want God himself is the essence of idolatry. And this truth was taught in, in the Old Testament, that, that God is our inheritance. Uh, when Israel conquered the land of Canaan, it was divided up among the various tribes, remember that? But the priestly tribe of Levi didn't get any land because the Lord told them in Deuteronomy 18.2, the Lord is your inheritance as I have promised you. The Lord is your inheritance. Now, do you suppose the Levites walked around and looked with envy at the other tribes and looked at their fertile ground and grumbled, well, well, where's my inheritance? And when they were told, the Lord of Israel is your inheritance, do you think they complained? Bummer, I'd rather have some land like they, they got. 
Well, maybe some of them did, but I hope they, they wouldn't. And likewise, the psalmist in Psalm 78 knew the joy of having the Lord as his inheritance. For a while, the psalmist was envious. He, he looked at the wicked. He saw their prosperity. He wondered, why do the wicked prosper? And then he got his bearings and realized that they would die and face God's judgment. So he affirmed in the 73rd Psalm, verses 25 and 26, he said to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And then I like this part, and my portion forever. God is my portion. And then the prophet Jeremiah also knew this wonderful truth. He had witnessed the awful destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, along with the slaughter of many of his people and the deportation, deportation and the slavery of many others. And in the midst of his grief, he affirmed in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 20 through 22 through 24, you've heard these words before, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. This is our great inheritance, the Lord himself. You know, we really need to cultivate a great taste for him and, and his fellowship. If, if he is not precious to you, if God himself is not precious to you, you are a stranger to your inheritance. If you love his gifts, think how much wonder, more wonderful the giver must be. And think what an insult it is to take a gift from someone's hand and delight in the gift more than you delight in the giver. God himself is our portion. We were made for him. And all the good things that he gives for us are meant to reveal more of him. And one psalmist said it sends our hearts singing to God. One more important note about this. If God himself is our inheritance, then our salvation is secure. If God is in our inheritance, we're not going to lose our salvation because he is eternal, he is unchangeable, and his promises never fail. And the reason we have him for our inheritance is what? We go back, he chose us and predestined us as adoption as his children. Now, another spectacular thing we see about our inheritance as God's children is that we are fellow heirs with Christ, who is heir of all things. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 declares, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is heir of all things. All things means all things. It's comprehensive. You know, I remember in Romans class at Central Baptist Seminary, and Dr. Unmack was teaching and where it says the word all. God causes all things to work together for good. And somebody said, Dr. Unmack, what does the word all mean there? What, what does that encompass? And he goes, all. <laughs> it means All. You know, all these great degrees, all still means all, all things, heir of all things, whom he also made the world. 
Paul puts it this way when we rebuke the, the bickering Corinthians. They were fighting, some are of Apollos, some are, I'm of Peter, you know, and they were going through all of this. And, and uh, Paul reminded them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Imagine telling the Corinthians that, who were a bickering, fighting church, and they had lots of stuff, but Paul wanted them to know the truth. All things belong to Christ, since you have joined heir with Jesus Christ. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Isn't that great? All things belong to you, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Again, if we are co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is secure because there's absolutely no doubt that Jesus will inherit all the things that God has ordained to give him. In Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm, the nations are raging against God. They seek to throw off the lordship of the anointed king of kings, but, but God who sits in the heavens scoffs at these proud earthly kings. Then the Messiah responds in verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter two, or Psalm chapter 2. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations. I will give the nations to you as your inheritance in the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, it's certain that the Lord Jesus will inherit all that the Father has promised to him. And since we are fellow heirs with Christ, our inheritance is also secure. Our right to the riches of heaven is not because of anything in us, but because we are in Christ. So what does this inheritance look like? Here's the next spectacular thing of our inheritance as God's children. Our inheritance includes the unfathomable riches of Christ. Our inheritance includes the unfathomable riches of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul describes his ministry as to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, as somebody who thinks about these things, I go, okay, how do you go to people who don't know God and preach the unfathomable riches of Christ? How do you do that? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Yeah, we go and preach the unfathomable riches, and we begin with the unfathomable rich of richness of salvation, of the love of God and all those kind of things. But what this is saying, that in the ages to come, God is going to show us what these unfathomable riches are. It's saying it's going to take the ages and ages of eternity to reveal to us all that God has prepared for us. What are we going to be doing in heaven? What are we going to do in, 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 in eternity? One of the things we're going to be doing is learning more and more and receiving more and more of what God has for us, these unfathomable riches. For all eternity, God is going to be revealing one thing after another that he has given to us. So what are these things? Well, let's just look at some of these. These riches include our being heirs of the world. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That 
that Abraham would inherit the world. Now, Abraham did not inherit the world in his lifetime. The only piece of real estate he owned was the burial cave at Machpelah, which is right outside of Jerusalem. I've seen that. You know, the tomb, tomb of Abraham. That's the only real estate he had at the end of his life. But God promised Abraham a new city whose architect and builder was God. Architect, builder is God. And Abraham was looking for that heavenly city. And since we are heirs with Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And not only will we be the heirs of the world, we are also heirs of the kingdom of God. James chapter 2, verse 5 asks, Listen, my beloved children, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? We inherit the kingdom of God. And included with these promises, we are heirs of eternal life which is the joy of knowing the only true God and, and, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul exalts, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And also being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That didn't get a vocal amen. It should at least get one in your heart. <laughs> well, that's the spectacular. <laughs> Boy, we went through that fast this morning. But that brings us to the suffering. The suffering. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, we move from the spectacular to the suffering. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. So it now leaves with, with a big question. What does it mean that we need to suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him in this way. Our glory with him, our inheritance, is conditional somehow, in some way, upon our suffering with him. Remember Jesus said this, if anyone wants to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Timothy, or Paul said it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you have a desire in your heart to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to take the heat. The author of Hebrews said, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Oh man, that comes with adoption as well. That comes with being in God's family. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And Peter said it. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why do we keep on rejoicing if we're sharing the sufferings of Christ? So that the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltations. No pain, no gain. No cross, no crown. No suffering, no inheritance. That's just 
the way it is. And if you ask, well, what kind of pain is this? Is this just, if we're suffering for Christ, is that just because we're suffering because we're in Christ? Is he, is he just talking about persecution? Or, or does this include the other sufferings and miseries that we face in life? And, well, Paul gives us a pretty good list in verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. These are the kinds of sufferings he's talking about. And he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, get this is a pretty good list. Will tribulation, anybody tribulate today? Or distress, anybody distressed today? Or persecution, anybody being persecuted? Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Put simply, what does it mean to suffer with Christ that we might be glorified with him? It's any suffering that you meet on the road to heaven's glories. Any suffering between here and the glory of heaven is the suffering. Any suffering that you meet and you endure by trusting in Jesus. It's the suffering, any hardship that might destroy your faith and lead you away from God. So why? Why is the road to suffering or the road to glory, the road to suffering and we're going to be spending the rest of chapter 8, and Paul's going to be telling us why the road to glory is the road of suffering. But just in brief application, I want to give you just a couple of reasons why as we finish up this morning. First of all, the road to glory is the road of suffering because suffering works the perseverance of faith. Suffering works the perseverance of faith. Why does Paul tell us that suffering must precede glory? Part of the answer is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, the third verse. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing the tribulation brings about what? Tribulation brings about perseverance. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance of what? Our faith. And how does it do that? Well... Tribulation, suffering, and pain, and trouble in life, it knocks out the props of our self-reliance. Yeah, it helps us realize, I, I can't do anything about this. That, you know, it, it knocks out the props of when we trust in other people, when we trust in things. You know, it just knocks those completely out from under us. Uh, suffering shows us that, that we ourselves and people and, and other things, that they cannot hold us up. And so it causes us to rely completely and more fully upon God. Suffering makes us rely upon God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That's Asia Minor, or Turkey today. That we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that, for this purpose, why? We would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If there was no affliction, no difficulties, or we could pretty much handle everything, you know, I got a handle on this, I can do that, yeah, it kind of hurts, but I'm good. If we could handle our, our problems that way, 
then our fallen hearts would fall more deeply in love with the comforts and the securities that we were trying to get, right? We would fall more deeply in love with the pleasures of the world and fall, instead of falling more deeply in love with our God and our inheritance that he has for us, which is namely God himself. Suffering is appoint, appointed to us in this life as a great mercy. Suffering is a great mercy. Why? Because it keeps us from falling in love with this crummy world. And it keeps us from falling in love with the wrong things. And it makes us rely upon God who raises the dead. Paul said in Acts 14, verse 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. There's no other way. So we are not to begrudge them. They are hard to bear. I know they are. But if we keep our eyes on the inheritance that's before us, and if God gives you the grace to see what Paul causes the riches of his glory of his inheritance, then we will say with the apostle in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And, and so we picture this life as a journey. We're on our way to receive a spectacular inheritance. We've received some of it, a lot of it already. But boy, we don't know what that is. And, and you know, what suffering does, it protects us from the idolatry, but it also makes our, our burdens lighter. It quiets our murmurings. Remember Gugosmos, complaining? Gugosmos, Gugosmos. It's one of those words that, that sounds like, like what it means. I like the way that the old pastor John Newton put it. Of course, John Newton was the, the writer of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And he said, Suffering is appointed for us in this life as a great mercy. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. And then secondly, the road to suffering is the road to glory because it produces the likeness of Christ in us. We'll see much more of this next Sunday and the weeks to follow, but look at uh, verse 18 of Romans chapter 8 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Much of the glory that is to be revealed to us is the glory of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that tells us that we are in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ from what? From glory to glory. The Apostle Paul saw his suffering as helping conform him into the image of Christ. I remember one day at Insight for Living, uh, one of the pastors Insight for Living that I knew also as a student at Dallas Seminary, we were on the elevator together and we got to talking about how, how God conforms us to the image of Christ. Funny what you talk about in an elevator and, if, you know, and something like that. You know. and, and so we started talking about suffering, how it conforms us to Christ. And then we both said at the same time together, I hate that part. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah, it just came out. But we understood 
that our trials and tribulations are a means to make us more like Jesus Christ. As a means to make us more Christ-like, we are predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. So, until we join Christ in glory, we're going to experience the same kind of suffering that Jesus did. And it's all in God's purpose and glory to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's really pretty much what the rest of the chapter is going to be about as we see that more and more. Shall we pray? Father, it's really a a thing to to take the unfathomable riches of Christ and and just try to boil them down in in a few minutes and a few sentences uh, from quite a few verses, Lord. But uh, I pray that we have gotten some sense from your Holy Spirit of what you have for us for all eternity. And Father, that you would bring that to our hearts and to our minds when we face that time when the car breaks down or we're faced with a loss or a difficulty and and those things that we cannot do anything about. We don't have it within ourselves, Lord. And we are distressed and, uh, and sometimes we even despair of life itself. Father, we thank you that we are your children adopted into your family and we are heirs of Christ, joint heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with him, and that, Father, you yourself are inheritance. Father, help us keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the protector of our faith. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.